0: Alright, so tonight, the top of your sheet says elders and deacons, but it, that's not true. It's just going to be elders, so uh, I, it was originally elders and deacons, and then all the deacons got pushed to next week. So uh, we'll, we'll be talking about them next week, and uh, so tonight is, is elders, a, a word that sometimes can, can bring fear, strike fear into the heart of many. Uh, hopefully it won't, won't tonight at all. Um, but I think it's an important topic for us to talk about in our study of the church, what the church really is. Remember, we've been saying for the last few weeks that the church is made up of members of the body of Christ. That's essentially what a member is, is a Christian. That's the, the two are really synonymous. A member of the body of Christ and a disciple of Christ or a Christian are, are the same things. And so when we look at membership within our body, What is local church membership? Local church membership is basically a reflection of the global body of Christ. These are Christians that make up the membership role. So that that has a a lot of things that go with it, a lot of moving parts, obviously. There are uh, times where uh, people that are proclaimed or called members uh, of the body of Christ demonstrate that they aren't members of the body of Christ, and that they uh, willfully, not only willfully sin, but, but willfully remain unrepentant of their sin. Um, but in Christ, we have been unified, we've been brought together, we have been redeemed. And what God has done through Christ is He has created a people for Himself. Out of Jew and Gentile, He has made them one. They no longer will be two. They will only ever be one, uh, Jew and Gentile, one uh, under one banner of Christian And we as a church body are made up, obviously, of many parts. Since we are members of the body of Christ, we have been unified. We have also come from various backgrounds. And so within that sense of unity, there is also a sense of diversity, in that you come from a different uh, background. You bring baggage with you when you come. Every single one of us has a whole heaping, helping of baggage that we bring with us and that baggage rolls over other members' toes, and it, and it hits people, and it takes up our space in the pew, and it does all those kinds of things. And so we as a church body have to be cognizant that we have to strive to unity. We come as sinful people with diversity, some of that good, some of it bad, and it, it, can, it can force wedges in between us. So as an example, I am a... Uh, white American male who's married and who has children. And each one of those things are not bad in and of their own self, but they can, if I want them to, cause division, right? I can choose to be around other uh, white American m- males who are married with children because those are my people, right? But in the church, we are founded, we stand on the bedrock of the gospel, And that forms our unity. So we, as a church body in particular, should be pushing back against those things that would otherwise seek to divide us. And as a result, when the church actually models that for the world, they find a world who, on the whole, is more interested in that kind of unity. Right now, the world is very much not interested in that kind of unity and would rather divide on all kinds of identity backgrounds because they don't see a way that a black person and a white person can actually uh, see each other as brother and sister. Inside the church, that's exactly what we are. So, um, God has created this body, the church. He has saved people. He has called them Into this this body, and he has done so by the preaching of his word, which is what we spent a lot of time last week talking about. Is that God always creates his people by his word? Anything that he creates, he creates by his word. And so, um, the church, the people of God, have been created long ago out of nothing by him speaking. We saw the the prophets were appointed to go preach to his people by the word that he put in their mouth. And we see Jesus come along, who is the visible manifestation of the word of God, uh, b- the word in flesh dwelling among us. And then after all of that's gone, we have the word of God that we preach and proclaim. And by that same word of God, people are brought to life and people are saved. And so we, that is, is kind of our, is our heartbeat as a church. So this morning, or oh, golly, it's been a long day, all right, so um, so this evening we're going to be talking about how that word is delivered to the people, and by what means is that word, does that, that word, is it taught to the people. When we talk about church governance, I realize that that is not the topic that just gets everybody going in the morning you know, I need my cup of coffee and my book on church governance, and that's going to really get me going. But really, when we say church governance, we're talking about how that unity that God has created is maintained. It's maintained by the government of the church. You should notice something in the scriptures as you read, is that on the whole, when the gospel is proclaimed, particularly by Paul, or when they're going out in these towns and places and things like that, they're preaching the gospel. They don't just have converts that are created and then they just go, sweet, we got people that believe in Jesus, see y'all later, and then walk off. They establish church governance to help maintain the faithfulness there in the body that is growing in that particular town. So it's clearly very important that we talk about it because when you're saved, you're not just saved in isolation. You're saved to something. You're saved to a church body. You're brought into the body of Christ and you're supposed to function alongside fingers and toes and and fingernails and all kinds of other things. You're supposed to function in coordination with a whole host of other people who have been put there for your benefit, and you have been put there for their benefit, which is really hard to wrap our minds around sometimes, because you tend to think, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I just, I don't really feel like getting up and going to church this morning. It's just, yeah, it's not, uh, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just not feeling it, and you think, ah, you know what, maybe uh, I really won't miss those people too much. You know, I'll see them, or I'll see them on Tuesday or Wednesday, or, or I'll come back next week. But it doesn't, you don't ever really think about it the other way around, maybe. That, that you're actually there for them, too. That that person is actually missing you. They may not even realize they miss you. But Sunday mornings give you an opportunity to bump into people that you don't often see. Or maybe it gives you a chance to maybe have one of those conversations, those serendipitous conversations where you talk about things that are, are deeply intimate that you didn't even know you are going to have that morning. So you're there for somebody else and they're there for you and you've been saved to something and the way that God has sought to establish you together as a body is he has put a governance, a governing body around you to help continue to foster that unity. Church governance is also sometimes referred to as church polity. P-O-L-I-T-Y. Polity is that kind of thing that is at least the root of that kind of thing you don't talk about at the table, right? So I'm running the risk here doing everything that you're not supposed to do. Um, but when the Lord established His church, He set up this structure around us. I want you to look at Ephesians 4, 11-12, and pay really close attention to what's happening here. He says, And He gave, that, that is God establishing His church through Christ, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers... To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. Now, what is the purpose of the first apostles and prophets, obviously, but then the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers? What's their purpose? To equip the saints. Surely it says you hire them to be the ones that do the ministry for you. That's what it says, right? Isn't that what he meant? That's not what he says. To equip who? Who's that? The saints. That's, that's everyone in the pew. Does that make sense of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the word is God-breathed and it's able to correct, to, to, to teach, to train in righteousness so that the man of God, or woman of God, would be equipped... For every good work. So, okay, why did he give shepherds and teachers to the equipping of the saints? Because I'm really good at equipping. That's why. Is that why? No. Because the teachers teach what? Philosophy 101? They teach the Word. Timothy goes into the church. He is to preach the Word. And through preaching the Word... The people will be trained and equipped. Who is leading the church then? Well, you would have to say it's God, ultimately. How is God leading the church? Through the Word. How does He always create His people and train His people and, and correct His people? And Through His Word. He's appointed a, particularly, a particular uh, people who are given to teach that Word, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Um, And so we get in Titus 1.5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So what we're going to see is that there's a couple of things that are really important. That We get this term elders that's used quite frequently, and the term elders or overseers, are synonymous with one another. They mean the same thing. They refer to the same group of people inside the church, and it's these that are given to actually teach the Word. They, their job is exactly what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, the people who have been given to the church as a, uh, a, a group to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, so that is their, their job. But these leaders of the church, these elders or overseers, are uh, uh, appointed for that task. So look in uh, Acts 20, verse 17, and you'll see here Paul uh, talking to the church at Ephesus. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And this is what he said to them uh, later on. He's, so there he uses we use the term elders, that's Luke. He uses the term elders. And then verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So we see that this, uh, this group of people are appointed uh, with the task of overseeing and teaching the word of God to the people. And what's the purpose of their teaching? To train and equip The saints for the work of ministry. As they teach the Word, that is what happens as a result. Now, this is a group of men. Notice that it's used in the plural. This is a group of men charged with shepherding the congregation in this particular way. I want you to see this sort of flow of the way it's referenced in Scripture. When elders and overseers are talked about, they are talked about in the plural. Look at Acts 11, verse 30. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the elders of the church at Jerusalem that uh, is kind of being talked about there. Um, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord uh, in whom they had believed. Remember, Paul, is, his task is not only establishing churches, but he's appointing elders in every church. Now, uh, we're going to talk about some things here in a little bit, That uh, sort of some rumors going around sometimes in some churches where there's, uh, there's little house churches kind of spread out across the town and there's an elder in every church. That's not what is in view here in Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church is a group of men. Look at Acts 15, 2-6. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, again, the church of Jerusalem here, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up, and it is necessary to circumcise them in order, to keep, in order for them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Um, it seemed good to them in Acts 15, uh, 22, again referring to the group of elders there at, uh, in Jerusalem. Let's look at 1 Timothy 4, 14. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So these are elders, again, shepherds of the church that are commissioning Timothy uh, 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Now, here's the interesting thing about what Paul is saying to Timothy here in 1 Timothy 5.17. Where is Timothy? We're studying this on Sunday morning. Where is he probably pastoring? Where is he? No, we got it mixed up here. No, he's pastoring in Ephesus, right? He's pastoring in Ephesus. We're teaching Philippians on Sunday morning in worship. Timothy in building blocks. Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus. Paul has called to him the elders at Ephesus in Acts. Timothy is presumably there with the elders. Do not admit a charge against an elder, uh, meaning there are multiple elders, unless there are evidence of, of one or two others. Remember your leaders. In at Hebrews thirteen seven, remember your leaders. He, the author of Hebrews refers to them as leaders, and it's the same kind of thing. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, that's how we know, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Uh, 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be no, of no advantage to you. But what about uh, James five fourteen? Is anyone uh, of you sick? Let him call the elders of the church. Uh, again, plural, a group of men in the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord uh, I ran out of oil first um, Peter five one so exhort, I exhort the elders among you. you get the idea over and over and over again uh, the term for the men that are charged with teaching the body the word of God is plural it 's a group of people now here 's what people often miss that the elder body grows as the gifts of the church, or as, the, as God gifts the church with more leaders. So as the church grows, He gifts the church with more people who are able to teach and to steward the Word of God. And so the elder body, the group of men who are tasked with teaching the church, grows as typically, hopefully, as the Lord grants, but as the church grows. Because here's what people miss. That being an elder, just like being hospitable, just like being encouraging, just like being generous, just like the many other gifts that the Spirit gives to the church, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, also gives the ability to teach. So, as the other gifts also are pluralized, generosity, encouragement, you wouldn't want one generous person in your church, would you? You'd want more than one. The same is true of the teaching of the Word. It also grows as the church grows and particularly as God grants because what is teaching but a gift the Lord has given to the church through particular individuals. Now, let's get to the awkward stuff. How about that? All right. You're like, it wasn't awkward already? No. More recently, some churches have opted for a singular elder or pastor as opposed to a plural group of elders or overseers. But, this is a recipe for disaster. And I've not only seen this play out time and time again, I think you probably have too, because we are a church right now (laughs) that recognizes one singular elder. Um, And I think that's a problem for a number of reasons. And let me go through those reasons. First of all, Scripture calls for a group of men. So it's a problem When a church decides we just want one. Um, And it's probably the most um, disastrous outcome in this whole thing is that there could be a blatant ignorance of the Word of God as it's actually being used in the church and being taught. That we would say, "I, I realize this is here, I realize this is the implication, But instead, I think we would opt for another form of governance that makes more sense to us. Uh, And ironically, what churches often opt for is like a committee system that looks a lot more like the U.S. government. I'm just going to leave that there. Um, What it also does is it consolidates authority to a single person. Um, I think you can already see how this would be a tremendous problem. Some of you may already feel like this is a problem here for that reason. Consolidates authority to a singular person. There, there's Like it or not, there is a day-to-day governance of the church that kind of has to be done by someone tasked to do it. Churches that have somebody that's sort of uh, part-time and just have that one person part-time may be all they can afford, and, and that's fine, and the Lord grants a lot of grace there, I, I know. But in the event that that's the case, often things will fall through the cracks or things get ignored or whatever. Um, well, in those day-to-day affairs, there's actually quite a bit that can take place and change. And if you consolidate all the authority into a singular person, there's, there's one person making those decisions. And you can already tell why that would be an issue, right? Um, people look up and go, well, this, this and this has changed. Who appointed him to make that change? Well... Um, so, it, 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 Scripture calls for a group of men. Obviously, that's, that's probably the most important thing. It consolidates authority to a singular person. It also removes the ministry from the church members. So, this has a, a strange effect on a church, and perhaps this is more anecdotal than anything else, but what a church is saying when they decide to take all the authority of the elder's role and put it on a singular person is they're saying, this person is the most important person in the church. That's essentially what they're saying. Whether they actually believe that or not, that's essentially what they're saying. This person is the most uh, important person in the church. If he drops dead of a heart attack on Saturday night, we're not having church on Sunday morning, or it's going to be real weird. okay? And who's going to even serve in some capacities if the pastor goes down? So it becomes a, a problem, but what happens over time is that the church members begin to see all of the ministry beginning and ending with that singular person. So now, instead of training and equipping the saints for the work of ministry, the saints have now said, you are the guy. You do the work of ministry. So a lot of times in job descriptions of pastors and things like this, it's written into their job description. You're the evangelist. You're the, you're the teacher. You're the, the visitor of this person. You're the, you're the this and you're the that. And before long, you go, well, What's the rest of the church doing? But the ministry begins and ends with that singular individual, and that's a, a problem. Now, there are several things that the church, or that inside the church, the elders are specifically called out in Scripture to perform. There's the training and equipping piece that we've already talked about. Of course, that is that is their job, but the way that they do that is through prayer and ministry of the word. One of the things that might floor you when you really think about it is here in Acts 6, 1-7. to I want you to just consider what role, first of all, that the apostles of the church are playing in the first century as they just begin establishing the foundational, you know, the foundational poles, if you will, of the church there in Jerusalem. Peter has preached the gospel. Thousands have come to repentance and are basically members of First Baptist Church Jerusalem and they're giving themselves the bible says right at the end of peter's first sermon these thousands that are converted and baptized at the end of acts 2 are giving themselves to the teaching of the apostles so they've got thousand they're meeting in solomon's portico right there on the outskirts of the of the temple they're gathered there on sunday morning when no one else is they're preaching and teaching and proclaiming the gospel there he is There's thousands that are baptized and brought into their number that morning, meaning they become members of the body of Christ. They're members of the church, and they're giving themselves to the teaching of the apostles. What does that that make the apostles of the church? They're they're the elders of the church. That's, That's effectively what they are, right? So what's amazing, though, as you follow the course of events, the church is located in Jerusalem. I mean, exclusively, until we get to Acts 7. Well, there in Acts 6... They're preaching and teaching, and something, a problem arises in their church. It says in Acts 6, verse 1, Now, in tho- tho- these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that is the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples, that is the rest of the church, And they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. I want you to just pause on that for just a second and think of how that would go over in just a Southern Baptist church. You got widows, poor people coming to the ministry of the table. And there's food being distributed and there's widows being neglected and they come to the pastor singular guy of the church and they say, we're being neglected. Most singular pastors are going to go, okay I'll fix that for you. Get up and do it. Not the apostles. Not the elders of the church. They said, it's not right that we should attend to the needs of the widows and give up the preaching and teaching of the word and prayer. So, what do they do? They create the first time, the diaconate, the deacon ministry. They create it out of whole cloth right here. They say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permeneus, and Nicholas, the prosel- a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the, the apostles, and they prayed and laid hand, their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, what is the, then the role of the deacon? which we're going to talk about next week, but what is the role of the deacon then as it's done here? It's enabling the ministry of the church to go on so that the group of men can devote themselves to the teaching of, of the Word of God in prayer. That's the role. What does the word deacon mean? It means servant. So you have two roles created within the church, two offices. Overseer, who oversees the whole ministry of the church, and primarily through the preaching and teaching. It's a group of men who do that. And then there's the diaconate, which is also a group of men who oversee the service of the church. That's why they're called servants. So so prayer and ministry of the Word is obviously tremendously important, or they wouldn't have said that. They're a principal governing body of the church. This is where we start to get a little bit awkward. Here we go. Principal governing body of the church. So the elders are tasked with governing the day-to-day affairs of the church. As we've seen, this is chiefly in preaching and teaching. But as 1 Timothy 5.17 points out, it's not exclusively preaching and teaching. It's also affairs. In fact, in the chapter just prior to the, the apostles establishing the diaconate ministry, they actually are the ones overseeing the giving of the church and how the money is spent. Uh, there as well. But look at 1 Timothy 5, 17. Um, Yep, it's back here on the first page. Um, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the idea is that the elders have some sort of... um, governing authority over the church, particularly in its day-to-day affairs. Not all of them are going to be tasked with the role of teaching exclusively on a day-to-day basis. Um, now, so the principal governing body of the church. But they also are charged with spiritual oversight of the church. We've obviously seen Hebrews thirteen seventeen. They have charge over your souls as ones that will give an account. You can see that in, in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Um, But then also Acts 20, 28. Paul lays this out plainly. It's also on the first page. Um, Pay careful, it's up toward the top, first quarter. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is their role, is spiritual oversight. Um, So what that means then is that Biblical eldership is really designed to uh, protect the unity in the church in at least four ways. First of all, it places authority on those most qualified to to have the authority over God's people. Why is that? Well, if you see 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, we won't read both of them. Let's read Titus 1, 6-9 since it's a little bit shorter. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his this is a qualification for an elder, husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open, we can talk about that later, uh, open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm, to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. The role of an elder is a teacher, and, but you notice that his qualifications are not an endless list of seminary degrees. His qualifications are character. God has entrusted the teaching of his word with a particular group of people who are driven by certain characteristics. Not knowledge that puffs up someone who leads in this particular way. Um, he'll give a very similar quali- set of qualifications in Timothy for deacons with the exception of teaching. So that should tell you everything you need to know. Um, but it places authority in with those who are most qualified to exercise it, whom God wants to exercise it. Uh, it also places authority uh, special responsibility with it, for the health of the membership in the hands of those who have a special accountability to God. So look at Ephesians four we've read, we've read the Hebrew it skipped. Special accountability. Uh, special accountability to God we've read the Hebrews 1317 passage. obviously we'll give an account for overseers your soul. but then look at uh, Ephesians four. 12 to 13, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So there is, a, there is an accountability that we're held to as elders of a church for the purpose of seeing that the body of Christ reaches maturity. That, that is the purpose, and we're held to that account. Was your preaching of the Word not only faithful to the intentions of the Word, but was it effective in actually making mature Christians in the pews? So in other words, the reason that you want God wants these particular men to pastor a church is because this is the goal, the maturity. They are charged to preach the Word, and through the preaching of the word, the people are made mature in Christ, because what God wants for His church is to bring them along to maturity. The only way they can do that is not by listening to a singular guy and his philosophies on life, but listening to the Word of God and being driven by it. Now, in the end, that's what I'm held accountable to. It promotes unity, the third reason, it promotes unity through God's requirement that members submit. So God has called His body, His people, whom He has brought to salvation to submit to these leaders. Not because they're so great, not because they're awesome, not because they may not do some things sometimes that really just make you mad, but because they're teaching the Word. It's not them you're submitting to. It's the Word of God in their mouth that you're submitting to. So that's another reason. It establishes. Oh. And I can't go back to that one because it's now done. Uh, I, it's just the last one. It's okay. One singular pastor. One singular pastor is the blank. So just. Uh, it establishes a plurality of leadership instead of one singular pastor. So that way, unity is first modeled in the pastorate, not by one man but by a group of men together. But second, the flock is properly cared for because proper care is more than one person can do. Amen, somebody. Amen. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) My family don't. Uh, It is more than one person can do. Uh, This hit me particularly hard this week, and I'll just... Bear my soul for a moment, if I can, uh, I was standing in my kitchen, and, and uh, <laughs> and Grayson said to me, um, you need to work really hard this week to get your sermon done before the weekend so that we could spend the weekend together, and it was that that just sort of, that's one of those Ugh! moments where you just sort of buckle over, um, and here's, here's the reality. One person cannot do all that is required in Scripture to pastor a church. It is impossible. There are probably a host of people that you've looked at over the course of your life and you've thought they had done it well, right? I guarantee you, I guarantee you, something was falling through the cracks. It is more than any one person can do. Because it was never intended to be one person. And we have for a long time, I admit, and I grew up under this. I've been in churches that were exclusively like this. And, and we've seen for a long time, look, there's one guy, he's pastor of this church. And honestly, for 2,000 years, there has been one person, in particular in churches, who has been charged with the vast majority of the preaching and teaching and has kind of been seen in that head sort of role amongst the elder body. But for 2,000 years, churches have been led by plurality of elders, and it has only been very recently that we have transitioned for some reason to a singular person in that role. Um, So... 1870s-ish, early 1900s. Yeah, yeah. Well, that seems like a long time ago until you take into account church history is 2,000 years so far. Yeah, um, and and until very recently, 1930s or 40s has it been in the Southern Baptist Church? Southern Baptist Church was founded by churches that were a plurality of elders, and um, and. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a Presbyterian thing. And most people, when they hear that, when they say elders, ruling, they associate it with elder rule, meaning elders make a decision, and you, the body, you put up with it. And that's not at all what I think is there in Scripture. In fact, what I think is there in Scripture is elder leadership of the church, pastoral care for the church, and membership rule of the church. Elder leadership, congregational rule. How does that work? Same way it works now. It's just more than me. Right? Member meetings don't change. Good question. Yeah. Um, Why did it go, she asked, why did it go to a singular pastor? Uh, That's a really good question. I mean, honestly, really, one that I don't really have an answer to, why there's a transition. Um, I'll say this. It wasn't because we got it right. (laughs) I'll tell you that much right now, Charlie. Yeah. (laughs) I'll get back to some irony there in a second. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, and I can say this. So here's, in in what sort of further entrenched a lot of people in that sort of ideology, is you you've got pastors that will be hired by a church. They go to this church. It's maybe let's say it's a smaller church, and and it becomes sort of their lily pad to the next church, and so you pastor this church for a little while, it grows maybe, let's say, grows from 100 people to 150 people, and the church of 300 calls that, that guy and goes, hey, our pastor just left. Would you consider come pastoring our church? And so he's like, the Lord is calling me. And so then, you know, he goes to the next church, and it's 300, then he takes it maybe to 400, and the church of 700 calls him and says, hey, we've seen what you've done there, we, we want you to go come pastor ours. And he's like, well, the Lord is calling me again. And so then he goes to the next church, and and on and on it goes, and what happens in, the, in the, the vacuum that he leaves behind is a church is left without a pastor. Once they've, once they've already kind of said it's one guy, right? He, he's left, and th- now they've been without a pastor. And so what then happens is the, the proper distribution of the way things should be led then transitions over to a plurality of elders called deacons. And so they go, these deacons are here for a long time. They're here forever. I mean, these are lifers. They grew up in the church. They've been in Tuscaloosa or wherever all their life. And so they're going to be deacons of this church. And so they appoint them deacons. And so then all of a sudden, you've got a pastor coming in as a deacon and deacons that serve as elders, right? <laughs> and so now you've got a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that singular elder who's, who sits there and they're like, well, we, 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 we have these guys kind of running the day-to-day affairs of the church because this guy always ends up leaving. Well, then this guy who's teaching the Word of God to the people then decides, well, I can't do that with this whole group of people over here telling me how I need, how, which way I need to go, right? So he leaves. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and then it just becomes further and further entrenched. So whether it was this book that was influential or not, I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, I don't know why the transition. All I can say is that it hasn't historically been that way. And so it has been. I mean, you're right. If we're looking just at our own life, it has been this way for a little while now, Right? And it's, it's been sort of airing for a little while now, but it's high time we correct it because it's, it's, it's killing pastors in the ministry. It's just decimating families of the pastor because the responsibilities that are on them are far too many for one person to possibly do well. And the irony of a lot of it, like what, what Skeeter had, point, had said, is like, jokingly, I think, is, is because you're all power hungry. The irony of all of this is that in the transition to a plurality of elders, many people think it's so that they can get power. And it's precisely the opposite. It's because this position has entirely too much power. The counseling ministry, the teaching ministry, the. the care ministry, the leading of deacons ministry, the shepherding of people and discipleship of people ministry that the pastors are entrusted with needs to be more than one voice. And when you consolidate it in one place and somebody actually comes in and starts pastoring the church and being an elder and actually taking care and managing the day-to-day affairs, you start to go, wait a second, who's watching this guy, right? But then there's the other complication of Who's actually asking him really hard questions? You ever thought about that? Who, who is actually the one sitting down in his office and saying, you have worked for 45 straight days? Are you going to take a day off? Who's the person doing that? Well, see, the church really is not the one that's probably going to be in the best position to ask that question. There have been months that I've worked every day straight, and that was earlier on, and it wore me smooth out. But who is there to ask? How many days are you taking off? Are you taking weekends off? Well, it's really not your role to ask that. You're not going to be there on a day-to-day basis. You don't know. You just assume, and you probably should. But that's part of the role of the other elders: is to go, no, go home. Because what's ir- ironic about the qualifications for an elder? Do you notice all the parts about the family in there? He has to manage his household. It's a qualification for an elder to manage their household well. You know how difficult that is to do in and of itself? So sometimes people will question the strange hours that ministers often keep, right? Like, okay, they're off on Friday, the offices are closed on Friday, or Rebecca's up there in the morning, but the offices are mainly closed on Friday, and they're off on Friday and Saturday. Mainly that's because we work on Sunday through Thursday, right? Right? But the other part of that is if we don't close that down and we don't mandate they go home and, and just take the weekend off, there's no way possible for them to manage their household. They can't do it. So people will often say, well, you know, I go to work and I have to show up at, you know, eight o'clock, punch clock. I go home at five, I punch clock at five and sometimes the ministers are here or there. Sometimes you can't find them. Sometimes they're at home. Sometimes they're here, whatever, doing, doing who knows what, right? Here's the difference though. If an engineer... Is working and becomes a workaholic. And then he decides one day, because he's a workaholic, he never sees his family. Maybe his wife leaves him, or maybe he has an affair with one of his coworkers that he works all the time with. You know what he does the next day? He goes back to work, the same job. You know what a pastor does? They go find another job, because it ain't gonna be pastoral, right? So there's a, there's a responsibility to manage your household and sometimes that means they spend a little more time with their family. And I think that includes Tom, Jeremy, myself. It includes everybody that's doing the work of ministry in the church. It's an important responsibility. But all that a church does when they deny a plurality of elders is they just remove themselves from ministry that God is giving to them. That's all they're doing. Cutting off their nose to spite their face. Because he's given teachers to the church to, yes, counsel with the Word of God, to teach with the Word of God, to preach with the Word of God, to encourage with the Word of God, to, do all, to, to lead God's people in various ministries and things with the Word of God. So when a church says, only one guy, all they're doing is saying, we only want ministry in one way, and we only want so much of it. Just cut off your nose and spite your face. Why would you do that? Irresponsible. Yes, there is. She asks, is there a, a is there a procedure for setting up that kind of leadership in the church? Yes, there is. Um, there's a reason that I'm teaching on this. I want I I understand... I wasn't trying to hide anything, by the way. It wasn't like a big secret or anything like that. I want us to understand, first of all, why we should do this, why we should move in this direction. And I also want to answer questions along the way and help assure people, because I think a lot of the reasons why Baptist churches push back against it sometimes is because they, we know we got ingrained in our DNA congregational rule. I firmly believe in that, and it's not changing. right? But when they hear elders, they think elder rule. And that's not what's happening Right? So that's, first thing, let me say that. But the reason that I want to teach this is to help us to understand what system of governance we're wanting to move to. Answer questions along the way, but then in the end, it's a change of bylaws that ultimately results in that. Bylaws. Yeah. So that would be a, there's going to be a number of different things that we talk about. First, we'll be talking about on the Deacon, with the Deacon body uh, over the next few months. Um, looking at what that would look like and what it won't look like, answering questions there, so that there's a, at least a group of people that will be able to answer questions for, for people, so that they'll be on the same page with me and help to kind of answer their questions first. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's, it's got to come from more than me, and, and, and so what I want to lay out is, basically tonight is, look, the Word of God says this. Like, so we may like it, or we may not like it, or we may be like, I'm kind of worried about it, or whatever, but it's abundantly clear that this is how the church was established. And so it must be the direction that we move, if we want to at least say that we adhere to what Scripture teaches. But, you know, beyond that, too, we also want to take people along slowly. I'm not trying to hit you over the head with anything. I just, you know... I came in to this church, and the pastoral search committee has a very lengthy document that I spend a lot of time writing at 3 o'clock in the morning uh, for them to read that details all of this that I've believed since the beginning and have, told, have, not, have made it clear since the beginning that this is what I see uh, the church needing to go. Um, but my, my heart is to help you see that it's, it's for the good of the church and, and it is in no way trying to grab some sort of authority. It's in fact trying to diffuse a lot of it from the position that I sit in. I, I've never wanted to be the one making a lot of these decisions or making, especially making them unilaterally, but I've also seen a lot of times the responsibility of an elder is to make these sorts of decisions, and it's irresponsible of me to pass the buck on to anybody else. So, but that's why I'm saying that, yeah, it's moving in that direction. So, once that happens, then it, then it will be uh, really putting those proposed bylaws out before the church and then coming together in a member meeting and, and approving them or voting on them. Are you making a motion right now, Lynn? I don't, <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> I don't think we're at that point yet. And um, I, I think I, I, I echo what you say. Um, there, there's a book that we've, we've had out there on the, on the table for some time, and I hope it's still in stock right now, but it's, uh, there's two, actually. One is Church, uh, the uh, Basics of Church Leadership, maybe, or Essentials of Church Leadership. I can't remember. Very thin book. It's 50 pages long, I think it is. Very thin. Uh, you can get that one. And Congregational Authority. Uh, Basics of congregational authority. Those two, I'd both recommend to you. It's a total of like a hundred pages, maybe, and they're tiny book. So, a quick read. You could probably read both of them in two hours, maybe. Even if I'm a slow reader, and I can probably read them about that long, I would recommend those to you. Um, they're helpful. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of books that I can recommend, and I'll start putting on this, on this packet in the weeks to come that I would recommend you get, and just look at what god's word says about elders but here's the thing too that that sort of is sort of the the kicker to all of this is that can you name a time in the history of god's people where he didn't lead his people by plurality of elders moses was the first keep going you'll find them all throughout the old testament they get into the new testament and the synagogues what are they led by a plurality of elders where do you think Paul gets a plurality of elders in the church? It's exactly how God's led his people since the beginning. What's around his throne in Revelation? A plurality of elders. It's been that way since the beginning. It's how God always, has always led his people, by plurality of men. So I would just encourage you to, to think about it. Read the passages that are here. Tell me what conclusion you come to. Other questions? What's that? (coughs) Yeah. 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 Well, hear me on this. I I know he's talking about the children, and I don't get a second time around. And, And and hear me on this. None of what I say. None of what I'm saying is asking for special pleading at all. None of that is trying to trying to throw myself at the mercy of the church or anything like that at all. In any way, nobody has ever put any of those responsibilities on me uh, in t- in the sense of like we want you to stay 45 days straight or whatever it is. And it, it, nobody has ever done that. Uh, that has been that's been me, right? That's this guy right here. I have me to blame for a lot of that. Um, well, but, sec- but second, you know, I mean, so none of that is to say that. All of that is to say, in just even talking with pastor friends of mine, this, if you don't, if you don't have other men that are, that are charged with the care of each other, then you're in real trouble. And, and, and then there's also the, just the practical, from the practical standpoint of, if I drop dead of a heart attack tomorrow, I would want this church to be pastored cared for by people that knew what they were doing and that actually you believed had the authority to stand up there open the word of God and preach it to you it's only right that a church be cared for in that capacity <laughs> Other other questions? even if they're hard ones? If wave what? <laughs> I'm sure you would. You, yeah, to more, to more. Yeah, you'd probably call it too, Richard. You'd probably call the day off. Yeah, Charlie. Yeah, um, there, there's a lot of dip- We're going to go into, there's a later section where we talk about uh, Baptists, distinguishing Baptists, and particularly Southern Baptists from other denominations and how we differ and why we differ based on what we've already covered. And so part of it we'll be diving into some of that then, but uh, Charlie's point was some Presbyterians have ruling elders and teaching elders, and, and they get that from the Timothy passage in 5.17, When he says, um, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I think their interpretation of that passage is a misread or a misunderstanding because I think all of them are charged with the ruling piece of it. There are some that are tasked more regularly with the teaching and preaching. So some people ask, like, if this was to be the case here, and you were to have a plurality of elders— who would be doing the majority of the preaching and teaching? And the answer is, is me. It, it, that wouldn't change a lot. Um, there would be, It would be a shared responsibility, of course. There would be other people that would preach and teach from time to time. Um, but I would be doing the lion's share of it still. And that would be my task. But a lot of the other things that I take up would be freed up by other elders to come in and, and help uh, steward and shepherd. Because I think all of them are tasked with that responsibility of leading the church. In his case, what he says here is ruling the church, um, and then I would be tasked with the, the uh, teaching and preaching, mostly laboring in teaching and preaching. So I think where the Presbyterians and I differ on that, the interpretation of that verse, is they would say, oh, see, there's a ruling group, and then there's a teaching group, and I think that's impossible for the same reason deacons can't properly lead a church. They don't teach the Word. The Word leads the church. So it's God that actually leads the church. The men who are tasked with being able to teach it are therefore the, the, the people with skin on that are leading the church. Thanks. Any other questions? Um, so I, I don't know was, it, was there a question or something I could respond to on that part of it okay yeah and the, the point was that an elder is over a deacon well the have of and that they should be uh, their primary jobs in the sure and then sure he in, the next job, uh, over sure well well, yeah, for the precise reason that they're named overseers, their, their task is to oversee all the ministry of the church. And so in regards to the deacons, the deacons are clearly in a leadership position. Their name is servant, but they're clearly in a leadership position. Um, the question then is, who does that group of men that serve the church answer to? Who, who's the one spearheading the ministry? Well, in Acts 6, you have the creation of that ministry done so by the elders. Um, not only that, you have the elders overseeing in the chapter before the giving of the church and all of the other things too. So it's clear that the, the elders are not solely responsible only to preach and teach um, because, as we said, the Word of God leads the church. And so the, the shepherds, the elders, are not only responsible to teach it, but they're also responsible to see that it's executed. And so one of the arms that enables them to execute the ministry of the church are the deacons. And so at some point, the elders are going to have to oversee the ministry of the diaconate so that they can effectively minister to the rest of the church and actually help lead the rest of the church in service. So the elders are responsible, just as their name suggests, to oversee all the reaches of the church. There's not a corner of the church that the elders are not appointed over. Because precisely because they're charged with teaching the Word of God to the people. So I don't know, I'm not sure if that answers your question. I Think it might be, at least in the direction that you're I can tell you that's where Mark is is going. Um, that's I've been in his church, that's how his church runs. Is is that way. So I don't know if I hope that answers your question. Yes. Terry. had our church they staff? they they seminary Yeah. Yeah, so um, good question. Uh I think there's—the the biggest expectation is that there would be some people that would be on staff, that would be staff elders. I think there would probably also be people that are gifted to teach and even preach on occasion um, that would not necessarily be paid for by the church. They may have another job. They may have a, you know, be a professor or something uh, along that line. Um, so they probably wouldn't be necessarily compensated in the same way by the church they'd probably be considered something like lay elders, but not meaning that they didn't understand how to teach or, or preach, but that they um, were gifted in that, in that capacity and yet weren't necessarily on staff by the church. Yeah. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. We both answered. And Presbyterians are going to make a distinction, a, str- a much different distinction, you know, in, in, than Baptists will when it comes to elders. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I do appreciate your questions. I'll, I'll just tell you right now, you have questions that you'd like to ask some other time, or maybe an email, or text message, or whatever, I'd be happy to take those too. Uh, So let me go ahead and close here tonight, and uh, we'll get Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time to just read your word, and to contemplate it, to ask questions, to think about uh, all the many things that you've tasked us to do, and my prayer is that you would lead us uh, to be governed by your word first and foremost, before we consider any other form of governance. Um, and, Father, that, you, that all of us uh, would just put our hearts in submission uh, to your word, uh, to the teaching of your word, to the preaching of your word, to the reading of your word, that as it has its effect in our hearts, that it would unite us as a church body, that it would call us to ministry, that um, we would pick up arms, not against each other, but against uh, powers and principalities that are now at work in this present darkness. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.